Welcome everybody to the third episode of Interop Talk, where we discuss new developments happening in the interoperability space. I'm Dave Castle, Senior Vice President of Customer Success at Health Gorilla and former Executive Director at Care Equality. I'm joined by Dr. Stephen Lane, Chief Medical Officer at Health Gorilla and former Director of Clinical Informatics and Interoperability, which is quite a mouthful, at Sutter Health. Devin McGraw is here. She's the data sharing lead at Invite and former Deputy Director for Health Information Privacy at HHS. And now that Zoom has stopped discriminating against her, we have Jennifer Blumenthal, CEO and founder of One Record. Welcome, Jennifer, and thanks for fighting through our technical difficulties there. No problem. Happy to be here. Excellent. I wanted to start today with congratulations to Devin, who recently participated in her inaugural HITAC meeting as a member. So congratulations, Devin. I know that it's been a while since the HITAC was formed, and it's one of those things that's out there and that people maybe don't think about as much as perhaps they should any longer. So can you give a just a brief refresher? And obviously, Stephen, I know you can chime in as well on HITAC and its role and what you're looking forward to in participating. Sure. No, I'm happy to. Thank you very much. I'm really pleased to be joining the group. I've actually been really impressed with the work that they've generated over the years since they were created, which as part of the 21st Century Cures Act. ONC has long had a federal advisory committee to give it recommendations on policies and technical standards related to adoption of health information technology and, and on interoperability. And there's usually, there was, for example, in high tech from 2009, established, I think what was ONC's first official FACA, Federal Advisory Committee. And they had, they split, split the baby and they had one for policy and one for standards. And occasionally there were joint meetings, but for the most part, they operated somewhat separately. There were, there are some statutory provisions that sort of require certain topics to be taken up by the Health IT Policy Committee, but ONC has some discretion to throw some others in there. And the same is true with respect to the 21st Century Cures Act iteration. The 21st Century Cures Act sunsetted the old two advisory committees and then brought a new one, the, high, the Health Information Technology Advisory Committee that has a combined sort of policy and standards purview. But very similarly, this statute sets out some sort of required issues that the high tech needs to take on. And there are some repeats from the High Tech Act, but ONC really does play a pretty strong role in, in directing some of the issues that the High Tech takes on, in part because ONC really should be getting advice on the things that are of highest priority to them, as opposed to getting a bunch of advice on some stuff that isn't really something that they intend to take up. So I'm pretty excited there. They've got, they've got terrific people on it, um, in, including Dr. Lane, but not limited to Dr. Lane and they have, they're taking on a bunch of issues this year that are quite meaty as usual. They continue to be leading in terms of the recommendations on interoperability and, and the data and data standards. I think there are some privacy and security policy issues lurking in the background and that are required by 21st Century Cures Act to be part of high tax purview, but haven't really been taken up by the committee for the most part since. So I'm looking for, for those which have been my sweet spot in terms of things that I can contribute and hoping we get to those during my term, which is three years. Excellent. Excellent. 
Yeah, I hope so too. And the, speaking of years and high tech, Stephen, I know that you're a longtime veteran of the committee. Can you share a little bit about what keeps you coming back and what you're most looking forward to in the upcoming year's work? Sure. As Devin was saying, it is a great window into the goings-on at ONC. Not only, it's a bi-directional, right? Just like interoperability, it's a bi-directional exchange. They hear, ONC hears from the high-tech and the high-tech hears from the ONC, and it's really very much a conversation. This is now my sixth year on high-tech. This is going to be my last year, and it's been a great run. I've found it fascinating. I've learned a ton. Unlike Devin, I wasn't schooled in the DC world. As a practicing physician, uh, I really felt like I was invited into the inner sanctum of how this is done, and I've learned a ton about how policy is formed and how incentives are arrived at, etc. The high-tech during our time has really been focused on 21st Century Cures Act and how to bring that to fruition, whether it's the TEFCA, the information blocking prohibition, advancement of fire, all of this was really called for in the Cures Act, which talked about not only what the focus was going to be, but just how things are going to be done. My understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, Devin, is that the act actually specifies in a number of places that ONC needs to do these certain things on this time cycle. So those come to high tech and they engage members, members of the public. We have task forces, work groups, committees that dig deep into things. The high tech itself is largely informational. We had our first meeting of the year last week and it was great. Mickey spoke and Elise and Steve, and you really do get a lot of meaty information that the Twitter sphere just goes goes buzz when high tech is going on. But uh, but it's in the work groups and the task forces that the real work gets done and a lot of very detailed feedback is provided. One thing I'm really looking forward to is the, the new ONC NPRM uh, that we're waiting for, the Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, which is really going to give us another layer of guidance around information blocking, around TEFCA requirements, around, I think, some security and uh, health IT certification requirements. So it's not, you can read a lot into the title of that and awaited NPRM, but until it, it arrives, we're not going to know. So I'm excited to dig into that. Obviously, the annual work of the Interoperability Standards Work Group that Devin and I are going to kick off this week is very exciting because that helps to drive the direction of USCDI and the Interoperability Standards Advisory. And as you noted, always new blood coming onto the committee. It's certainly becoming more diverse. It's certainly becoming younger as over the years that I've been there, I guess I'm getting older, but we're getting good people coming on with new perspectives, patient perspectives, privacy, security. I think it's a great group. I'm thrilled to be able to be a part of it. I'm looking forward to how we progress this year. Excellent. The, one of the things that, that I know that you are planning on working on, and you mentioned you know, the working group that ends up helping to produce the Interoperability Standards Advisory, and there's work that's going on in the US CDI. Some of you, if you pay attention on LinkedIn and you follow Health Guerrilla, you will have noticed that we released a state of interoperability report. Not here to plug the report per se, but one of the things that, that I noticed in it that stood out to me was the section on data quality. We were able to get opinions from, I want to say, 40 of the 50 50 largest health systems don't completely quote me exactly on, on that, but I think it's something along those lines. And somewhere around 60% of them felt that the data quality in terms of what they got from interoperability was okay or worse. Fortunately, most of the 60% thought it was okay, but there was a 10% who thought it was worse than okay. 
Uh, and specifically, people were referencing lot, lots of duplication, just plain garbage data. Jen, I'm interested in your experience as a user of the data and an enabler of the data. What's your sense on the quality? Assume for the moment that it's one of those cases where you've gotten information. How usable is it? How much effort do you have to put into cleaning it up before presenting it? Oh, Dave, why are you asking me such easy questions? There's two parts to this question. If you are building a user experience for consumers, you have to put a lot of effort into how you present that data. Because if you're thinking about the data that's coming through a Fire API, it's not coming in a structured document like a CCDA. It's not, here's the template, here's where the data formats. You have to then decide how do you want to represent that in some sort of face sheet. The data that comes in is very specific to the EHR vendor, right? It's very specific to then their clients, their facilities. The biggest thing that I see is just the gaps in the data that's coming in. I think about the migrations that are happening from one EHR to another EHR within a organization. And the first thing I always ask is, okay, what happens to all the data that predates maybe 2020 or 2021? Are they moving that over? And then are they making decisions on what data they're going to move over into that database that then they make available within the new EHR? And I think probably you and Stephen know this better than I do, but I think EHRs historically have had a hard time once they get data from one another within networks like Care Quality or Commonwealth is like, how do you present or aggregate that data into your, into your EHR system? So then whatever is going into the EHR system is the export of what we get via an API. I'm interested to see, though, with these R4 APIs, the difference in data from the DSTU2 APIs, right? It's an expanded data set based on USCDI. And I've had one-off conversations with very large IDNs who are struggling to map their existing data to USCDI. There's just gaps in, there's constraints in it because it's not broad enough. So back to, I think, the committees that and the work that Devin and Steven work on, like the development and maturity of USCDI is so important to the quality of the data that will come through. But ultimately, it probably starts at who's inputting the data. Right? Yeah. The other thing I can say as an, yet another user of this data, and one that has been, we've been far less dependent on or using FHIR API data, we actually are getting CCDs and HL7 documents because we're going the route of health information exchanges and or the health information management departments because we've always needed a much more robust data set for the patient populations that we're serving than we could get traditionally through APIs. Now, of course, that will change as the, the data that is available through fire APIs gets more and more robust, which is definitely the direction we're heading in. But duplication is rampant in data in diagnosis that's on one page of one document, potentially conflicting with another page of another document and trying to reconcile and what's the source of truth. And we work with physician advisors for the populations that we serve to try to help us navigate some of that territory having said and if it came to us cleaner obviously it would be a lot less work for us to clean that data up and then work on the presentation and user experience issues that that you referenced Jennifer but it's but we'll do it because we'd much rather have the data dirty than not be able to get it at all so I think, I, yeah go ahead 
I'm a little out in front of my skis here. So Dave, try and correct me as I say this, but like the way I think about it is if you think about when CCDAs go from one system to the other and people are transforming them to their data models and then they're spitting them back out and going all kinds of different directions, you have this mess of data that's already being exchanged in traditional forms of exchange. And then providers have to figure out to take that data and they got to map their data all the way down to make it available via an API. We built a rules engine to reconcile and dedupe data so that when a user pulls in data, they're not pulling in duplicate data. That engine's been running since 2018. So it has a lot of training data that it's gone through, but then it still doesn't handle, I'm just bringing this up because Devin referenced deduping data, is it doesn't handle the quality of the data. Like we can say, okay, this is new, this is different, but like, how do you deal with just like crummy data? And what do you do with that? Actually, Devin's approach to going to HIEs, going and getting the actual PDFs, and probably someday playing with Fire APIs, you get to see the differences in the data, and then you complete the you create that complete picture. And I think that there's just no silver bullet yet, ever. But this is, this is a great discussion because we each have a different perspective, right? Jen, you're coming at it from the patient access. Devin, you guys are looking at condition management. As a primary care physician, I have struggled with data quality my entire career. And it has so many dimensions, data quality. We're really starting this discussion, but, uh, but we have to think about it. Duplicative data is just one facet of the data quality problem. There's data accuracy, precision, completeness, timeliness, validity, in addition to the uniqueness that we want to drive out that duplication. And we have to really start as an industry to think about all of these dimensions of quality, to understand them, to analyze them, and then start to improve on them piece by piece. And uh, it's a long way from where we are today. As you say, I'll take dirty data over no data at all. I totally agree, right? I want all the data I can get to take care of my patients, but, uh, but we clearly need to advance this in a positive direction. And there's good work going on, but I think incorporating this into either regional exchange, national exchange, getting some milestones, some metrics into the TEFCA framework would be wonderful as we move forward so that we can really start to improve on the quality and therefore the utility of the data that we're sharing. I think for me, I'm not even as concerned with quality just yet. I'm just still concerned with getting access to the data. <laughs> like, forget about quality. Follow me on Twitter and my adventures in requesting patient access APIs. Like we are just, oh my God, it's just no bueno. Actually, I was going to double click on your comments, Jan, about crummy data. And you mentioned you have an algorithm that does the deduplication and that it is reasonably successful, but you referenced that, but there's only so much it can do with crummy data. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Are, you, are, are people using poor coding, things just entered manually and spelled incorrectly? What are just some anecdotal things you can share about what you're seeing? Just historically, it was just empty data. Like you just didn't get anything back. How do you design an interface when the data is just not pre present? Inaccuracy, that was reported a lot by users being like, this isn't correct information. And then it goes back to how do you report that back? Like, you have to go tell your provider. The provider has to, like, that's so much work. And then the last thing most recently, and I haven't, I don't have a really formed opinion on this, but just working with some very large IDNs and being early testers of their fire APIs while they were going through certification is that they're ha they just have so much data and it doesn't map all the way down to USCDI. There was a specific example, and I'm going to mess this up with medication sets. And there's just, they have such a much larger, medication set codes or set whatever you know I'm talking about there was just a lot more and they had to make decisions and that means data was left on the table 
it's not a great response because I didn't really fully understand what they were talking about, but I knew I didn't like the answer they were giving me. <laughs> but you made Fair a really enough. good point, Jen, that you need to move the data, you need to be able to find all those missing fields, but then the mapping, mapping the data, the mapping. The standard code sets, yeah. it's so critical yes. for us to be able to move towards that semantic interoperability, that true transfer of meaning that is needed if you're doing what Devin's trying to do or what I do in my practice, to have to have mapped data, and it may not come mapped from the source. So sometimes it's the intermediary or the platform that needs to do that work to bring in that additional fill in the blanks, as it were. You mentioned medication data. Of course, there's codes for all the medications, right? NCPDP, et cetera. But that doesn't mean that the source included those codes. So if you're transporting that or curating that data, there is an opportunity to improve on that. I think one of the keys is, and I've heard this mentioned a number of times, is that when you improve on data, when you enrich the data, you need to be clear who added those additional data elements and based on what. So this notion of provenance, you can get a package of data like a medication, for example. You may have heard that they were given amoxicillin, but it may have been missing the dose or the route or whether it was a capsule or a tablet, et cetera. If people are able to add that richness accurately, that's great. But sometimes people might stick in more data and it won't be accurate. So you have to know who, who added who filled in those blanks and based on what knowledge that they had. I, I recall that this was a while ago now, and hopefully this, I'm almost laughing at myself even as I say this, hopefully it's getting better. But I recall a former life, we would encounter that various organizations did some really creative things in the problem list, using it to help drive other workflows with information that I suppose was tangentially related to the problems, but it was interesting to say the least to be in the problem list. And obviously folks do that all the time. They they find creative ways to uh, handle workflows uh, and it's just part of the challenge of managing this data that we get in, in healthcare. To, <clears throat> excuse me, to, to circle back a little bit to the high tech and the work on the USCDI, our the, this notion of really standardizing the code sets, how far along do you think we are with that, I guess, Stephen or Devin? And what, how much realistically do you expect to come out of the work that you're embarking on this year to, to help address that challenge? I can comment. I've been involved in the evolution of USCDI since its very inception. So it came out of the common clinical data set, which had been defined in earlier legislation, and it's been building year by year. The USCDI version one was very heavily utilized in a lot of rulemaking, including the information sharing requirements. And, and as you've heard, it really does define a core data set. But what's really exciting about the whole concept of the USCDI is that it does go through this annual process of expansion, which is slow and painful, but, uh, but it does keep moving us forward. And it's really only by advancing that USCDI with the specified technical requirements and implementation guides that go along with each new data element that's added that we're really going to see improvements in the ability to exchange meaningful data. So I think we did 
with the information sharing requirements, see that change from the scope of USCDI version one to all electronic health information. And everybody thought, oh, great, data liberation day. Now you're going to be able to get all the data you possibly want. Already could under HIPAA, as Devin is quick to remind us. And they did not include any technical specifications. So there really wasn't anything new about that. But what is new is as we add progressively new data elements to USCDI, and then they get picked up by HL7, the implementation guides, they get added to the standards version advancement process and eventually get named in legislation, then we're going to actually see more data being shared. But I think that it's interesting, Devin and I are involved in a process in California that's trying to leapfrog a little bit of in front of the feds. And they're trying to require USCDI version two as the standard of data that's going to be exchanged ahead of the rest of the country. But Devin, I'd be interested in your thoughts about how valuable that is or if we need to wait for the feds to do that. No, I don't, I don't think you need to wait because if you think about it, and I'm just joining this new group, still getting my feet wet, but I would say if USCDI through the standards advancement processes is already catapult is already moving to four. And I know the group is going to very quickly focus on what can happen with, it's going to get so far out ahead of where the actual required standards are that I think people are going to, there's going to be a little bit of a disconnect, right? Because we've always been historically a little bit slow to move the standards piece, at least from a required standards standpoint with, and by requirements, I'm really talking about what do the certified electronic health records have to instantiate in, into their products in certification, because that's one of the few levers we have where we can force people to move from one standard to the other. Arguably, we've got some other levers, but that's always been one of the most powerful. It's still at one, as you pointed out. So we got four. Next year, we'll probably have five. Next year, we'll have six and seven. And the data classes that are being added, I sometimes think about it as motherhood and apple pie. It's, oh, good. And here's another one. And here's another one. And yes, that's all valuable. This is great. It's awesome. But it's continuing to get way, way out in front of where the technology is in order to deliver. And it still focuses on categories of data, as opposed to a lot of times like going right down into the micro level of you know, which codes, that's where the implementation guides are obviously very, very much needed, but we will continue to add data classes ahead of where the standards work goes with this. And I do wonder whether we're going to end up with a bit of a disconnect because we've got the motherhood and apple pie list adding data classes quite frequently, but we're still at one in terms of adoption either because it's not required or only certain people are able to take advantage of the SVAP process in order to start moving to better classes. And we're out way ahead of where the IG development information, the implementation guides are in terms of the actual technical standards, thus continuing the kind of cacophony that we've tried to, that we're trying to get away from an interoperability perspective. And that's the only thing that occurs to me because every time a new USCDI version comes out, I'm like, that looks great. That's awesome. We're moving. We're moving, but we're not really moving if nobody's adopting it. <laughs> and if it's under what, what you'll learn, Devin, is that they actually don't let us add anything to the new version until the IGs are done. 
And ah, it's up, okay, that's good to know. It's up to our group and ONC to make sure that all of that detail is specified before something's actually added. But, e but even if you think about the conversation that we just had around medications, right? The, we There is, and I'm sure there's an IG for meds, and yet there's still, why do we still have a disconnect in terms of, you know, missing med data because people don't know that their med is in that class because it's maybe not specified at the ICD-10 code level. I don't know. That's an open question. Yeah. I'm new to this, but it does occur to me. It's good to hear that we're not outpacing the IG development, but we are definitely outpacing adoption requirements. Yep. By a lot. And that was something that I struggled with at care quality in terms of as at times slow and frustrating as the process was of developing new policies and new implementation guides, it was nonetheless still faster than actual implementation. And I think that's just a general issue across our space. However, the wheels grind slowly, but perhaps they do eventually grind. And there, there is a subtle shift, not necessarily a new requirement, but requirements kicking in with respect to EHR certification, fire APIs. Jen, we were talking about this a little bit before we, we started. Would you mind commenting a little bit on that, that difference in, in EHR certification and what you think it might or might not mean? Yeah, so I'll give a little background for any listeners. As Stephen likes to say, information sharing, I'm going to call it information blocking. Under information blocking, there are three actors that are called out, right? It's HIEs, HIN, CERT technology vendors, and providers. I'm specifically just talking about the relationship between CERT technology vendors like the EHR companies and the providers right now as I answer Dave's question. So basically what happened was as part of the interop rule, under 21st Century Careers Act, the government basically had updates to the 2015 certification. Rather than roll out a whole new set of criteria, they just opted to add new criteria. And under that new criteria is the essentially the adoption of, or not the adoption, but the use of um, fire APIs. So there's something called, I like to call them the G10 updates. So it's standardized API for patient and population services. And the compliance date for that was December 31st, 2022. And the requirement is that EHR vendors support a FHIR version 4 API for obtaining data from a single patient or all patients. And then there's another um, requirement at the end of next year, at the end of this year, actually, because we're in 2023, which is electronic health information, all EHI export. But right now, what we're just talking about is the R4 APIs moving to production. So basically all the past couple of years, all the EHR vendors have had to be moving towards this update to be able to expose an API, a fire API for their clients. And the most important thing as a developer, so I always think of things as an app developer, is that we they didn't have to have their R4 APIs out until 12.31.22. So they were all kind of building them, certifying with certifying organizations or consultants, consultancy firms. And on, they all had to publish to Chapel. So you can go to Chapel right now and you can find the list of vendors that are available. The last time I looked, there was about 238 listings for organizations that updated their products for G10. Out of those 238, only 220 are EHR. So there's some non-companies that have certified. The problem that's happening right now is even though the EHR vendors have certified to their G10 update, which is the Fire API, their providers don't have to expose those APIs. Devin recently heard me talk about this. So what I'm having, what I'm experiencing is you had certain vendors like 
Epic, Cerner, Athena, ECW, NextGen, Medhost, and a couple others, like they were very proactive. They got their R4 APIs out. You could start using them in Q4 of 22 and they exposed their client lists. And a lot of them moved for this opt-in model. So if you as an app register, you are automatically opted into the use of the APIs if approved and all that kind of stuff. But that is only a handful of vendors. You have 220 products that I need to go out and register for. And the rest of those products are doing a different model where you're, they're essentially saying, okay, my client, the provider organization has to authorize the app and I'm not taking any part in this process. So what that means is if I register for EHR vendor X and they say, you have to go to my clients, you have to go to over a thousand clients potentially and get them to authorize your client ID, which is your identifier so that you can call their API and not get an error. This is not scalable. Everybody's thinking, okay, Tefka is going to solve this, UDAP, all these nice things, but it's 23 days since January 1st. And I have spent, I will sit down for eight hours at a time and just be writing emails to health systems. Over the recent long weekend, I did it for two days in a row. So that was 16 hours of just emailing. And what I'm getting in response, and I've been emailing Devin about this, is providers saying you need to prove the patient request. They need to fill out like almost the same kind of forms Devin fills out for the him departments. They need to show ID. They need to fax a copy of their driver's license to get approved. And what I think these providers don't understand is, okay, let's say I get one patient to go through this workflow to do the extra effort for me to authorize my client ID. Every patient afterwards doesn't have to do it. Once your ID is authorized once, you're in. And I am getting the most ridiculous responses from privacy officers and IT, the head of, director of IT. And the thing is like these provider organizations do not have the education. They don't have the regulatory teams and their EHR vendors said they educated their customers, but they really didn't. And this way it shifts the responsibility onto the provider and honestly puts them at risk for information blocking. And what's even worse, I know I'm still in my soapbox, is that there is, this is what I want to know. What is the turnaround time? What is the legal turnaround time? Because I have provider organizations in these horrible workflows saying they submitted a JIRA ticket to their EHR vendor and I'm not getting a JIRA ticket. I have no idea how long it's going to be until my, the switch is flipped for my app. I have some words for the ONC. They did not think about this. And this is the most important thing that's going to happen right now, because if Forget about data quality. If you can't turn on those fire APIs, you're never going to see what data is coming out of all the 220 other products besides from the top 10 vendors. So I'm angry. Follow me on Twitter and you'll learn more. This is a jurisdictional issue. What? It's a jurisdictional issue. So ONC has authority to directly regulate the EMR vendors around their provision of their adoption of yeah. fire APIs and certification standards. And they set timeframes around approval of apps from the EHR standpoint, because they could, they had authority to do that. They could lean on them because it was part of their certification requirements. And they have five days to authorize you after application. That's right. Or but, but ONC gets to write policy around the information blocking rules, but otherwise does not regulate healthcare providers. And so consequently, they can't set a time frame 
for providers necessarily, for providers to, to set up those connections. They probably arguably could under information blocking policy, but you have to remember that the information blocking rules are a set of presumptions. We, we rebuttable presumptions, right? We do have some discretion around how you roll this stuff out, but you just have to make sure that that doesn't, isn't deemed to be an interference that isn't justifiable in accordance with one of the safe harbors. So there are no hard and fast deadlines. You, in, I do follow you on Twitter and you picked 15 days out of the air. Would be nice if it were policy, but it's not. It's in the, so it's in the law, there's 15. So if I apply, let's call it like chair EHR. If I apply to chair EHR, they have 15 days. I think they have to approve my app. Or something like that. There is a turnaround time for There's approval. a turnaround time for the vendors, for the yes. EHR vendors. There is not a turnaround time for providers to turn them on, for providers to do their part in 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 you in the circumstance where and ONC did allow for the vendors to defer to their customers about when stuff gets turned on and when connections happen. And so consequently, that leaves it up to the provider and the only sort of law that would prevent a provider from just taking their own sweet time is arguably the information blocking rules, but that doesn't set a time certain. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of gray area. And, and no we don't have, and we, yeah, we don't have enforcement. We don't have provider disincentives. We're hoping to make progress on that this year, first for the HAEHINs and the cert certified vendors, but, uh, but for providers, we keep waiting. And I, I'm embarrassed to say that it was the physician lobby that, that baked in some of those barriers. And until we have clear penalties for providers and not just physicians, laboratories, imaging centers, all the providers who are out there, pharmacies, that's when we're going to start to see this move. Just because something is illegal doesn't mean it's not going to happen. I think I'm going to publish like a, I'm, so I'm working on, I have about 400 organizations that I'm working through a list of requesting right now. And I am tracking it. Like every email, every conversation, I'm putting a date and I'm trying to see how long it takes from initiation to approval. And then I want to see over that whole core cohort. And I'm noticing themes already. Like there are themes in the responses. Some of them are like, yes, we are on it but then the vendor's taking a long time to do whatever they need to do on the configuration side. Some of them need a little education. I get on my phone, I do my little cures soapbox. And then the ones I hate are the ones who are just like, nope, we need a form. We need all this kind of weird stuff. But Devin, to what you were saying, my the way my brain was thinking about this was, isn't there, like when you do a traditional chart request, I as a consumer patient of access, isn't there a timeline with that? And that's what, 30 days. So in my mind, if I was the government, obviously they should let me my opinions is that it should be 30 days. Like any, so by the moment, here's where this, it breaks down though. Why? This, is, this is where the intersecting circles don't connect up so they well. Talk so to each other. HIPAA does not require people to buy new tech. So if you decide as a healthcare provider, you know what? I'm not using my portal, my, my APIs. It's fairly nice that my vendor gave them to me, but I'm not going to use them. There's not yet a connection that the, that HIPAA regulators have made between having capability to do something in a way that the patient wants and actually turning it on and using that functionality. I think there's an argument to be made that if you're sitting on tech and not using it or deploying it 
in, an, in some sort of expeditious fashion when you've got patients that are requesting their data that way, you've got a HIPAA problem. But, it's, but without guidance from OCR, that leaves gray area and people are dancing around in the gray area because they can. I think this is literally, we should take this recording and send it to OCR because this is the most important conversation to be having right now. Like the effort, I am going to generate a report on the effort it takes me to connect to scorecard. Scorecard. Yeah. The scorecard, yeah. <laughs> Dev and I have other conversations about this stuff is yeah. it is, it's so time consuming and it's going to decrease the adoption of these APIs. And then you're going to get the argument of, oh, we had to do all of this and nobody's adopting it. It's so much work. The only reason why I'm good at it is I have two years under my belt of harassing the payers on the payer side. So I know exactly you know, who to target within the organization, what title I'm looking for. I know how to navigate these sites and I know what language to use. And when I don't, I email Devin or I email somebody at Karen and I ask their opinion on situations. But this is literally the most important conversation to have because I don't see how you're going to have a fire IG in Tefka and everybody thinks it's magically going to work when it doesn't work in the open ecosystem. Yeah. There are gaps that could be filled. They just haven't been filled yet, which is why this is still such a, the struggle bus way more well, than it just, should. you mentioned using fire in Tefka, just like we're waiting for incentives or disincentives to get providers to conform with information blocking prohibitions, we're going to have to go through the same thing with Tefka. How do you get Tefka actors to actually sign up and participate in that exchange? You, just because you build it doesn't mean that they'll come. We need to start with really nice carrots and then move on to some- Something that I do, and now I'm telling you my secrets, is I'll usually go through, when I'm requesting a provider, I'll always have my app, my phone open. I'll look to see if they're an Apple. Because if they were an Apple, I know that there's a higher probability I can connect to them quicker with these difficult EHR vendors because Apple, they were early adopters, right? So they kind of trained a lot of those early provider organizations. I, we have a consumer app. It's on iOS, Android, it's on the web. So like provider organizations go see the app and it starts the approval process. But I think anyone who doesn't have an app or a relationship to the consumer is going to struggle. And also we shouldn't have had to invest that much into building that app just to get approved. I think that these provider organizations requesting these like giant forms filled out by that first patient to get access to these APIs is just, I think that's information blocking. That's my final opinion on that. I'm going to yeah, start. I was actually perhaps for, we want to be cognizant of our time here and needing to wrap up, but perhaps for a follow-up conversation, we can talk about the information blocking once the enforcement is known to potentially close those gaps in HIPAA. But uh, really appreciate all the commentary as always and the passion. I would love to have this go to OCR and have them act on it. I don't know if we'll get the HIPAA update this year. It may still be in time to provide provide them with some unsolicited feedback that they could weigh as part of that process. With that, Jennifer Blumenthal, Stephen Lane, Devin McGraw, thanks as always. And we look forward to episode four. And for now, thank you again and uh, take care. Thanks, Dave. Yep. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thanks, Dave.